I'm Chip Bach, and welcome to Blue Rock. On each episode, we'll discuss what life is like on this big blue rock, where we are all headed, separately and together, what changes we need to make to ourselves, the planet, and towards each other, and just discuss what daily life is like for your fellow crew. And maybe, just maybe, we may also see a commonality that connects all of us. Welcome to Blue Rock. This is one of the inaugural episodes of Blue Rock, and I've got an inaugural guest of all guests, Dave Kalama, uh, calling in all the way from Hawaii. Dave, a little round of applause for you. I know uh, you don't always love the, the attention. You do it more for the love of the sport, but hey, we'll throw a little applause in there for you. So, Dave, thanks for joining <laughs> us today. Uh, yeah, as, good as morning. I told you, super excited to talk to you. Um, Obviously, you know, you and I have known each other for a few years. I've known you in passing for probably a lot longer. Probably w- walked past you and threw you a shock at, at Rainbow Sandals, you know, Battle of the Paddles that I was in and things like that, but didn't get a chance to really, you know, get to know you until we spent some time at one of your mini Kalama camps with you teaching me uh, how to paddle uh, better than I already was and, and things like that. And, and I bought a board from you and other stuff. So, um, Really wanted to take a deeper dive for everybody that's listening and watching, uh, kind of get to know you better, uh, kind of what you're up to lately, and then uh, get into some little bit deeper stuff, because uh, it's, a, it's a weird time we're living in, uh, for all of us, even for servers. So um, anyway, Dave, I, I guess to get started, you know, obviously Dave Kalama is a big wave surfer. That's probably what he's most well known for. Uh, but a lot of people don't realize he touches all the different areas uh, of the water sports. Um, Dave, you want to give us a little background on that, you know, from your perspective? Sure. First of all, good morning, Tip. Great to be with you. I'm stoked. You seem to have a really cool concept that you're creating with your podcast, so I'm excited to be here. I appreciate that. But uh, quickly, the kind of 30-second history on me, born in Southern California, uh, Costa Mesa, Newport area as a young kid. I ended up in high school up in Mammoth, so I got into ski racing. Chased that for a few years. It didn't work out, uh, which brought me to Maui. I've been here for 36 years now. Um, my first passion has always been surfing, but what got me to Maui was windsurfing. And that sort of started me down this waterman's path combined with my surfing and was very fortunate just to discover and get in with the right people um which led me to so many other facets that we can get into but toe surfing longboarding tandem canoe surf canoe racing paddle boarding just all these different uh aspects um which feels like i've sort of willingly or unknowingly turned into kind of a waterman and have sort of made a life out of it. Um, so that's kind of the 30-second version of, of yeah, who man. I am and what I've done. So a couple of quick questions about that, about your, your background. You know, I was doing a little bit of research and, and came up with some, some pretty cool things. I think one of the things I wanted to ask you is, I think a lot of people, obviously because of where you're at, your name, your background, 
Dave's Hawaiian, right? Like, like historic Hawaiian. So I guess the question is, I, I look at your background, it appears that you are, but man, you're, you're, you were like a West Coast kid growing up. So how did that all work out? Because I'm seeing things in your lineage. Your grandfather was Hawaii amateur champion, like 1962, something like that, 64, somewhere in that range, early 60s. Um, your, your dad brought outrigger canoe from the islands to California in the 50s. Like These are the things I'm like, he's never mentioned any of these things. Like These are kind of like, for me as a waterman and for, I think, anybody that knows anything about the water, even if you, you, you live in, in, in Midwest United States, those are kind of big things, man, especially the outrigger. So tell, tell me a little bit more about that. Yep. So your facts are right. But it's flipped around. My grandfather was the one that brought uh, canoe paddling or started okay. the first club in California, Newport Outrigger. I'm, I'm going to fire my researcher right now. Yeah. It's me, so it's <laughs> fine. I fire well, myself fact, a lot during the day. <laughs> the facts are accurate, and that's the main thing. Uh, my dad was the 1962 U.S. surfing champion, won the Huntington Beach contest. And so, yeah, uh, my father's full-blooded Hawaiian. That's where I get my Hawaiian lineage and connection. Uh, his father was very much uh, an established waterman and used to swim competitively against the Duke. Obviously, the Duke was faster, or you'd know my grandfather's name a lot better. But uh, yeah, he was the real deal. He was the real deal. And That's awesome. A lot of uh, waterman lineage there, and and a lot to live up to. But you, you, because I you guys have a, in- you guys have a beach. Named after your family and Maui? Yes, yeah, so I understand that too. That's my grand uncle. So my okay. grandfather's brother was very prominent in local government uh, back in the early 1900s. And so there's a school named after him. There's a and a town in Washington State. Same. I heard that the, too. Yep. Uh, so one of the family members uh, ventured over to the Pacific Northwest a long time ago. And the story I heard was he set up camp next to this river that had no name. And so they ended up calling the river Kalama River. And then when the town was sort of uh, born out of the location, it became known as, as Kalama Town. Uh, so he was looking for a peaceful place to go hang out by the water, and people just showed up and kind of messed up the secret spot, is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> something along those lines they moved yeah. in built a town said look we'll name it after you we're here now right yeah, so, exactly. man there's 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 a pro and a con there someplace i don't i don't know I'm, I'm wondering if he was happy about that or not uh at the time so that's pretty cool <laughs> yeah but man, like i said that's that's big when you start talking about indigenous peoples uh, uh of the american continent obviously ooh, by default hawaii not by default but meaning by association nowadays uh modern u.s you've got the hawaiian islands um you know to have that kind of background obviously all uh indigenous you know native hawaiians have a lineage back right it, it, in some way shape or form it's an island chain um but you know that's honestly pretty cool right because i don't know that uh all people's native uh heritage like that has that kind of background and you know beaches and towns named that that's that's really cool and then obviously to bring something over that's such a cultural part uh, of polynesian culture not just hawaii which is the canoeing part and have that be part of your lineage it's like wow what's left right inventing surfing like it's 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 pretty cool 
But obviously, it must be in your DNA because one of the things that a lot of people may or may not realize, um, but uh, all of these stand-up paddle boards uh, that are invading all of the resorts worldwide, uh, including in the blow-up form, uh, all kind of hook back to Dave and, and a buddy of his that some people might know by the name of Laird Hamilton. Uh, I had a Blame Laird t-shirt a few years ago, as a matter of fact. Um, did that, and if anybody's watched Step Into Liquid, which is not a recent film, um, Foiling, which is now all the rage. So we're, we'll, we'll talk about that uh, in a little bit, Dave, because I know part of what you're doing now is more directly related to that. But along yep. these lines of kind of lineage and what has Dave's family done and what's he done for our society? What, you know, I know you and you and Laird, tell us a little bit about what that was like. I've read a little bit about those early days of stand-up paddleboarding, trying to figure out how to get a long enough paddle. And then there's also this little island thing going on. As you know, I'm, I've been a, a team rider for C4 Waterman, yep. more so back in the day when, when Brian Keolana and Dave Parmenter and, and, and Todd Bradley owned the company. Um, but, you know, I read stuff like Keolana was one of the first guys to bring back a paddle. And started paddling at Makaha, but then, you know, I've heard stories from you know you and Laird. No, we were doing, and there's, I almost feel like there's this little bit of a, well, who started it then? Um, what, what's your take on that? Because obviously you were you were there getting it done or figuring it out is a better way to put it. Yeah, um, my assertion is that we never started it. I, <laughs> I make no claim to that. Uh, the stories I've heard are that it originated more with the Duke. Um, the Beach Boys, right? In Waikiki, yeah. they used to paddle out. Was it one of the, the choice, right? Exactly. They used to take pictures of the tourists. Uh, they would sit on a, a chair or a stool on a, on a tandem board and paddle yep. out using a, a, and basically like a, an oar. An oar, uh, yeah. So they could use their hands because the cameras weren't waterproof, right? Back in the 50s and 60s. So. Exactly. Um, yeah. That's a fairly well-known fact around here so no one's ever sort of really thought we made it up because they knew it existed long before we came along i would say all we did was help popularize it right and the makaha guys i am certain they were doing it before they saw us do it because they do everything there right and any any form of riding a wave uh be it popular or not i am sure i am sure Brian or Mel or Rusty or somebody's paddled out on a picnic table and probably ridden it. That's one so, of the things I love the most. People, people that go to Hawaii from the mainland or anywhere in the world, right? They go to Oahu and they do the Waikiki thing and they do all that. And they may even go up to the North Shore. But because of where Makaha sits, right? It's pretty isolated. Um, it's very local, right? So in other words, unless you don't know where you're going, you, you wouldn't even know how to get to most of the places that are there. And if you do show up, I think as long as you show respect, they're okay. But for the most part, it's a very local place. But one of the things that I find fascinating is that we've got this weirdness around water places and resorts and surf breaks. And obviously with the blowing up of the WSL, and we'll talk about that in a second too, because I know you, you do commentating for them also. But when you look at you know the Kelly Slater and all that stuff, town I live in is where Slater's from. So I've got a lot of pro surfers here, but it's all you know shortboard and shredding and doing all this stuff. And if you, God forbid, you go out with a a boogie board everybody you know is like kook and whatever meanwhile where it all starts and where the true watermen are everything's on the table boogie boards yeah. and boards body surfing 
like you said, picnic table, it doesn't matter. They'll go out and make it and make a day of it. And that's one of the things that I love about the, the, the waterman lifestyle and, and the sport and things like that. And that, that's one of the things that obviously I know you and I have in common is that, you know, we don't put labels uh, on stuff too much. Right. T- tell me more. I mean, give me your thoughts on that. Well, Makaha to me, it's, it's like a mirror in a magnifying glass combined together. Whatever you bring to Makaha will be reflected and magnified. So if you come in flexing and thinking you're somebody, you're going to get squashed. If you come in with, with respect and aloha, um, they, will, they will magnify that back to you, and you will be shown that aloha. But if you don't, you, you're going to get 10 times of whatever you show up with. So, show so up I like that. I'm, I'm, we're going to get into that in that esoteric part, because now I'm starting to hear things like vibration and energy and things like that, which yep. you're feeling in that area. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Go ahead. So, yeah, whatever you bring to Makaha will be returned tenfold, you know, so be careful how you come and how you enter that zone, because it's very old school, it's very Hawaiian, um, lots of aloha, but lots of beatings if, if you're not respectful. Um, in terms of their surfing, and I think this is true in Hawaii, is we don't equate your talent or skill level to the board that you ride. Your talent and skill level is determined by how you ride whatever it is you ride, not by the length of your board, which seems to be much more of a common philosophy um, in mainland U.S., where the size of your board dictates your skill level or is a way to communicate to everybody how good of a surfer you are by the shortness of your board. In Hawaii, Length has nothing to do with it. Style of your board has nothing to do with it. It's purely on the merit and the skill that you exhibit when you ride whatever it is you ride. So for those paying attention, uh, Dave just said length doesn't matter in Hawaii. Just want to make sure we're, we're clarifying that. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, you're going to get a lot of letters about that one, I think. Um, anyway, uh, no, I that's exactly the, 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 the vibe and the feel I get. And that's something that, you know, uh, when I first met Brian Kailana and I first met Dave Parmenter and Todd, they were really big about that, right? Because they had started this company on basically a shoestring. Uh, they were taking super long uh, boards and cutting them in half and <laughs> doing all kinds of weird stuff to kind of push the envelope forward. You know, Todd was already making outrigger canoe carbon paddles, so he just had to figure out how yeah. to make it longer without breaking and things like that. And uh, one of the things that we bonded over was the fact that I, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't like contests, right? I don't like yep. the whole, you know, shortboard, longboard, who's the best, who's the worst. I can't figure out the point system, quite frankly. I mean, I, I, you know, I've competed in some contests, and I stopped doing it because I'm just like, I, 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 my personality is if I'm doing what you told me to do to get points, and I don't fit, I'm not, you know, in the finals, then you need to explain it to me. And I had a problem because I'd go up, again, because I, I didn't grow up doing I did. I grew up doing uh, sailboat racing, one design, but I never grew up doing surf contests. So being here now and in, in kind of the hub of right coast surfing, I started doing contests uh, in the early days of when they were let, letting stand up be an exhibition contest. And I'd get all pissed and, and I mean, just my personality. I'd go up on the judges stand and be like, explain to me what I should have done differently. And the dude's like, you can't do that. What are you doing up here? 
I'm like, I don't <laughs> understand. I, I did this. I did this. You're supposed to use a paddle, initiate the turn, da da da. da. Uh, freaking one of the longboarders decides to borrow a board, goes out there, does a couple of, you know, nose rides, and he he gets the trophy. Like I'm confused. What the hell happened here? Um, so I agree with you uh, that that whole concept of putting everything in a box. That's one of the things I I, I really truly love and feel like a uh, uh, like a like a pseudo honorary uh, Howley uh, on the right coast <laughs> because my spirit is aloha and, and, and from the island. And I try and constantly, you know, bring it here. So I, I really like the way you, you kind of outline that, the way you guys see the world, uh, see life, see surfing, and, and kind of the whole concept of, you know, competition and, and what you're riding defines who you are and all this, all this kind of stuff. And that's probably what's led you to some of the other things you guys have done. Um, I know from a standpoint of where you came from. So I know you, you ended up in Maui, you started doing, now I heard this was because of some vacations your parents took you on. Yep. Like you you kind of went around the islands, really liked Maui because you saw some of those, uh, you know, world-class windsurfing areas and then pretty much graduated from high school and just headed to Maui. I mean, is that fair? Is that, is that a correct statement? Pretty close. I mean, I was, I was putting a lot of effort into trying to be a competitive ski racer and it wasn't happening and I was getting extremely frustrated. And there was a very clear moment um, in a race I had where, you know, earlier in the season, I was the second guy on the team and here we are later in the season and I'm down to like first alternate because I can't finish. Anyway, so I start this race around 72nd. I move myself up to 10th or 12th place after the first run. So it's two, run, two runs combined together. And I'm like, okay, this is it. This is the moment I get my ski racing career back on track and I do something. And I go out of the starting gate and I blow out at the second gate. And there wasn't even a turn at the first gate. I didn't even fall. I just kept going left when I should have gone right. And it became so painfully obvious this wasn't meant to be and that was kind of my moment of clarity where all right you're not meant to be a ski racer and not long after uh my parents were in hawaii and my mom said hey your dad's getting bored he needs someone to to hang out with and play and whatnot and so they bought me a ticket for the moment to come over to Kauai, but the plane had to let some passengers off on maui first so I never even got off the plane. I just looking out the window and the approach and seeing the windsurfers. It was like, this is it, you know? And, for, and for, even a for anybody that doesn't know, by the way, the, the difference between Maui and Kauai is and Kauai is dramatic. Kauai is like Jurassic Park. Um, Maui yes. is a little bit more fun. Uh, but anyway, sorry, man. I just just go ahead. I, I I'm hearing you're on your way to Jurassic Park and you decide to stay in maui so that's pretty cool yeah maui literally spoke to me and, and said this is where you belong and it was one of the clearest moments i've ever had in my life um and tried to find my way back to that clarity many times and never have but there was a split second where i was sitting on that plane where that voice inside my head in fact i thought it was someone in the seat behind me telling me wow hey this is where you belong and, and so i you know, I turn around and I look at them and this lady looks Dude. at me all weird. Like, what are you looking at? 
You know, <laughs> oh, sorry, <laughs> nothing. But it was so clear. It was like someone was speaking to me. And uh, so I took that as a sign, quit school, move to Maui and start windsurfing. So that's what I did. Um, and I had a good friend that, that moved over from the mainland with me. And, you know, our thing was at least a year. Don't, don't, you know, things go south and don't, uh, don't give up. Stay for at least a year or until you stop having fun, you know, and I'm, I'm 36 years later and I'm still having as much fun as I ever have. Wow, man. I mean, that's, that's something that I, I know for myself, right? Everybody has regrets, right? They have those moments. Um, I've got several from when I was younger, you know, things that I think back, man, if I just done this, it would end me up here. And what, but what I've learned later on in life, uh, clearly you learned it much earlier and it probably is just done nothing more than reinforce that you re- made the right decision, clearly. Because look where you are and look what you've done. Um, but yeah, I think everything leads us to where we're supposed to go. It's all about the journey. Uh, I'm a little jealous because you kind of figured out the start of the journey sooner than most of us. Um, I, didn't, I didn't figure anything out. I, I was it, it's just the, the journey to wandering start. Wandering along. You figured out where to start, right? <laughs> yeah. which, which path to take. You just saw it and went, I'm, I'm going. That, that's Not many people do that, man. Well, you know what? I think I had a dislike for school that was strong enough to allow me <laughs> any excuse to go another direction. So the voice um, in your head may or may not have been there. It's just a story you've told yourself over the years. I heard a voice. I and so voice. I'm, I'm more of a Hawaiian shaman than I am anything else. So that's what got me out to Hawaii. So now that dude, that's cool and definitely ties into the whole thing with Blue Rock and other stuff we're going to talk about as we, as we go through the, the, the thing. So we're definitely on the, we're definitely linking up here, man. So I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, so I, I saw also, I mean, obviously you played high school football uh, at, Mammoth, at Mammoth Lakes. Now, where is Mammoth Lake? Where's Mammoth Lakes compared to Newport Beach? They're it's not about, the same place. No, no, no. Uh, okay. It's five and a half hours drive north of L.A. And so my parents... It's in the mountains, out. right? Yes, I mean, it's, it's in the mountains. It's, it's where you would have gotten into skiing. Yes. Correct? Okay. That's what I thought. And I'm like, this is weird. He's in Newport Beach, and then he's well, he's in Mammoth Lakes, California. That's Those are dramatically different climates. I'd end up there. So my parents split when I was very young. I stayed with my mom in Southern California. I moved up to go live with my dad for high school. And that's what got me to the Mammoth Lakes area. He had moved up there uh, several years earlier uh, to kind of check out the surfing, get into skiing, really found a passion for it. And uh, so that's what led him up there and got me up there later in 79. And so I did my four years of high school there, um, worked out at Snowbird for the following winter after I graduated, still trying to be a ski racer, then went to Sacramento, started college back up, took a year off. Uh, had a, a very good ski racing team. A bunch of my high school buddies were there. Gave it one more year, and, and as the story goes, it didn't pan out. But uh, thank goodness it didn't. <laughs> yeah, no kidding, man. That's fantastic. All right, so let's jump forward then to now. So you're windsurfing. Uh, what are you doing at, at that point? So you get out there, you're windsurfing. Were you trying to compete in windsurfing? Were you were you instructing? Like, has where what did life what did life look like then? This is we're talking now the eighties, right? 
Yes. So okay. this is 85, July 2nd, 1985, 12.30 in the afternoon on a United plane was when I landed in Maui. And I just absolutely, I could windsurf when I got here, but very much a beginner. Um, but just loved it and spent all of my waking hours at the beach trying to figure the sport out. Um, got fairly proficient at it within a year and a half and signed up for a contest at Hukipa, made it through the trials into the main event, and lost my first two heats to a gentleman named Jerry Wilson, and then Jerry Lopez, the surfing Jerry Lopez, was in the event. So you're telling so, me Jerry Lopez not only was killing it at pipe, but he was also messing with everybody on windsurfing as well. See, very, very good windsurfing. Too much, too much talent messing with everybody's events. That's the problem. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> So, I don't think anybody knows that about Jerry Lopez that he was a windsurfer. I really oh, don't. Oh, yeah. Fact, that's Jerry, the first I've ever heard of it. Jerry was my first sponsor for windsurfing. He, he started making me windsurf boards, and I rode for him for several years. Um, but yeah, every contest after that, I kept working my way up through the ladder of competition. And then eventually, about three, three and a half years later, I started winning a few of the the major wave sailing events on Maui, which uh, really kind of sent my windsurfing career in, into a whole nother level where I could make a living off of it. And so I did that for several years. Uh, yeah, 1991 world champion? Is that uh, correct? Well, I, I won the Hard Rock Cafe World Cup of windsurfing, which was a single event, but it at counts. the time it was... <laughs> The richest, I think it still is the richest wave sailing event there's ever been anywhere. Uh, I won a car and like, I don't know. Holy cow. Six grand or something like that. And I beat Robbie Nash in the final to do it, which was really, uh, I mean, that's, that's, that's like beating Michael Jordan. In, yeah. Yeah. In the finals. It, yeah. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Was very significant for me. Um, with Probably significant for Robbie, too, <laughs> <laughs> at the time. Yeah, when he's basically crushing it everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Robbie was the man. He's still the man. But uh, at that time, he, he owned windsurfing. He, yeah. he was Mr. Windsurfer. So, yeah, that he, was back yeah. when I was first learning to windsurf. And, I, I mean, obviously, you know, I'm, I, at the time, I'm living in Scarsdale, New York, and, and Long Island Sound is my beach. Uh, that's a far cry from what you guys were doing out in the islands but robbie nash was like you know i had pictures of robbie nash you know catching airs off of waves and all kinds of stuff and we had you know some of the big ports that was when baron von dick was getting into making windsurfers and stuff like that so we had a handful of different boards that we'd take down to cape hatteras and try and ride waves and stuff but they were big logs you know what i mean nothing like what you guys were riding so robbie was like you know to me i literally had pictures cut out of magazines and stuck on the wall you know on my bedroom uh, that kind of stuff. So yeah, he was he was the, he was man, the man in wet surfing. Absolutely, dude, that's unbelievable. So so now you you go through windsurfing, and when is it you meet Laird Hamilton? When does that whole thing start? Because for those that don't know, Dave and Laird were partners in a lot of different things that led to a lot of different cool things. Which were, uh, Dave, I'm gonna have him explain more details on that that have been kind of changed the water sports for everybody um 
But when did that all start? So Laird and I met not too long after I moved to Maui. Uh, he was living in Maui then, right? He wasn't in Kauai? Yeah. He was in well, Maui he was, too. Or he was bouncing, bouncing back and forth. Bouncing back and forth between Oahu and Maui quite a bit. Okay. And Laird was actually a really good winter for himself. Um, he didn't necessarily compete, but on the bigger days when there was waves of consequence, you'd always see Laird out there just tearing it apart. So through mutual friends, I had met Laird uh, fairly early on in my windsurfing career and, and knew him casually, and, and we were friends. But uh, it wasn't until probably the early 90s that we started hanging out a lot more. And kind of longboarding, toe surfing really brought us together and solidified the friendship. But uh, yeah, I'd known, I'd known Laird for a little while. So to become partners in the toe surfing uh, wasn't a big leap um, because we were already kind of friends from windsurfing. Right, right. Well, you guys, you, you, I mean, that, that brings us into you know, some of the things that you guys were literally the the pioneers of, right? Toe surfing. I've seen pictures of you guys with like a little inflatable towing each other and then maybe a Boston whaler, like stuff that, you know, you, if you get caught in the inside, <laughs> it's, it's, it's on the Not rocks good. and it's expensive, you know, way before the jet skis and things like that, that had the power and the speed to, you know, keep you out of harm's way. So you guys were really flirting with, with danger, probably way more finesse than there is today. Well, you know, back, Back at the beginning of toe surfing, so it was it was more Laird, Derek Thorner, and Buzzy Kerbach over on Oahu, experimenting with the I think it was Buzzy's Zodiac, um, towing into waves and riding their big Waimea guns. But almost at the same time they were dabbling in all of that, we were really going down the rabbit hole of footstraps and connected surfing, and loops aerials and all of this and when we got all back together uh on maui and combined the two things the utilization of the zodiac with these small surfboards that had foot straps that's kind of when everybody's mind got blown and all of a sudden we started to see what the potential um was in combining all these different aspects right and we had already known about piahi but Piahi at that time wasn't known as Piahi. It had several names prior to that. Uh, one of the first, and Jerry Lopez was the one that introduced Piahi to us. But it was originally known as the Atom Blaster. Then uh, there used to be a geometric. That's, that's a sign of the. That's a sign of the nuclear age, right? Nineteen fifties. <laughs> exactly. That's um, pretty funny because based on what it's called now, you kind of have an idea when that got named. Anyway, go ahead. There used to be a geodesic house up on the cliff. Yeah. So then it then it got known as domes. Uh, then Jaws came. Actually, there was another sign that was at the cliff called Dragon's Back for a little while. And then Jaws. And then we started writing it and figured we better find out the real name of this place or the Hawaiian name and show it the respect that it deserves. Because once we got out there and realized how much power this wave had, how different it was, and the speeds that you travel. Um, it was like, we, we need to show respect. And, and and was anybody really riding it before then, or was there really only like really small windows of time when you could ride it because of 
how big and, and gnarly it can get. Well, Brett Lickle and I windsurfed up from Poquipa back in 88. And that okay. was the first time I know of any windsurfers riding it. Um, and, and it was a small day in retrospect. At the time, it seemed massive, like right. double, double mass. Um, but in terms of surfing, yeah, we had heard stories. There was a guy named Johnny B on Maui that had told us he had surfed it, paddled out from the rocks and surfed it. Um, and he did have a couple pictures to, to prove it. Um, but looking back, all those days would now be considered small relative to, to how guys are riding now. So, no, we weren't the first ones to ride it. Yeah. Um, Jerry Lopez and, and his brother Victor used to tell us stories of when they'd go watch it and climb down the cliff to go paddle out, get down there at water level and see how actually big it was. Because up on the cliff, you're like, oh, it's 8 or 10 feet. We can you do can that. paddle into that. Yeah. <laughs> you get down at water level and see actually what that 8 to 10 is actually more like 15 to 20. And all of a sudden, it's, whoa. Uh, yeah, we, we brought the wrong board. Let's, let's go yeah. home and get the bigger board. Just sit on the shoulder and watch it for a while. Yeah, no kidding. So, yeah, wow. Uh, yeah, that, no, that's, that's kind of our first experience with Piahi. So, so you guys start basically the whole concept of, of, of toe-in surfing. And I remember there, what movie was it? Was it Step in the Liquid or was it Endless Summer 2 when there was this whole part about the paddling crew and Mavericks and then going over to Hawaii and seeing the towing crew. Was that, I can't that, remember. Cause I, I can hear, so, I won't, I want to hear Dana Brown's voice in my head. So the first, the first movie that showed Piahi and where we got our first jet ski was endless summer two. Yeah. The contrast between Mavericks and Piahi was riding giants. Oh, riding giants. Okay. Where it had uh, Jeff Clark's whole story at Mavericks. Yep. Yep. Kind of Laird and I over at Yahi. and uh, by the way, while we're while we're on that, for everybody listening, uh, Dave, you got an award for that, did you not? For riding giants, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you you got an award for that. And while I'm on awards, I'll, I'll talk about a couple other ones too. But, but from what I'm understanding, you got you. I believe it was at the film festival. Was it? Yes, yes, the one on Maui. Yes, the we one did. on Maui, right? So yep. I believe you got you got a, a an award for your role in that. Um, there was also, which by the way, for everybody listening, that movie has a ninety two percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Fun fact. Um, but let me tell you, for a surf movie to have a ninety two percent on Rotten Tomatoes, pretty damn good. Because one, you got a lot of people watching it that had no idea anything about surfing, and as Dave probably knows, surfers are the worst critics. Of surf movies, <laughs> they will destroy a surf movie over ridiculous things. So to to maintain a ninety two percent with every surfer in the world being able to watch it, and it holds that record plus non surfers, uh, that's a that's a pretty damn good uh, thing on that. So I, I wanted to mention that, but there was also you know as we're kind of talking about you as you're going through your time in Hawaii and and kind of moving forward to present today, um, some of the things people don't realize about Dave is. A lot of awards. He doesn't talk about them. We know all that. Uh, but, you know, from a standpoint of, you know, winning different contests, and obviously I, I know you've won contests um, in, in paddleboarding, downwinding races, um, you know, the, the, the Maui Nash Paddleboard Championships, you had a win there uh, back in 2011. Uh, you were in the finalists for the SUP Awards, um, which is a big thing for every, anybody that's in the stand-up paddleboard community, you know, globally as, as one of the top male paddlers. I think you made it the top three 
on that back around the same time. Um, but I understand in 2006, um, you were awarded the Beacon Award at the Maui Film Festival. And this was for reviving, I think it was for actually for Yours and Lair's um, production company, Bam Man, uh, yep. for reviving the, the surf film genre. So for anybody taking notes and, and to, to take you through, uh, um, Dave's lineage, you know, brought uh, outrigger canoe surfing to the mainland. Uh, he pretty much pioneered with some other gentlemen toe-in surfing. Um, won a whole bunch of awards, and then also is credited with reviving the surf film genre after it had been around for a long time. That's 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 a heavy uh, that's a heavy title to wear um, on something like that. Uh, also, a couple more awards. 2018, you were inducted into the Duke Kamana, uh, uh, the Duke Foundation Hawaiian Waterman Hall of Fame, which is huge, is it not? I, I yeah, that my was, understanding um, is that's a really big deal, especially if, if you're in the Hawaiian culture. Yeah, I um, I was very humbled to be asked to join that Hall of Fame, and so awards really don't inspire me. I don't have any in my house. Um, and not that I'm against them. I, I love competition. Um, always, I, I enjoy competition where there is a finish line. It's black and white. You know who won. There's no kind of human subject. You, you, you and I have talked about that. That's my little pet peeve. I like a finish line. Right. Yeah. Uh, um, except as long as everybody's the same size as me, that's in the race. That's another exactly. discussion. Um, we're we're still looking for a Clydesdale class in, in stand-up paddleboard racing and canoe racing, but I, I digress. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll leave that on the table. But yeah, that that award or that induction into the Waterman Hall of Fame, um, it it almost doesn't sit well with me because when I look at the Duke's hall of fame and the people that are in it those are the real guys those are the guys that i looked up to and i know their names and and the lore and the the myths and the legends that go with them and to to have walked my path and now be grouped with them feels odd because i was just playing the whole time i was just having fun they seem like they were. But Dave, that's the that's the whole point, right? I think we're all led to believe that that achieving anything, whether it's inner peace, happiness, wealth, whatever label you want to call wealth, right? Everybody want, everybody always immediately thinks of wealth as money, but as you clearly know, wealth is way beyond financial means and 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 having things. But uh, you know, when when you're looking at things like that, um, uh, it, it's it shouldn't be hard. I think we're programmed from the time we're kids, right? I mean, you play football and all this stuff. You gotta work hard, you gotta train hard, you gotta put in the hours, you gotta pay your dues. You know, those are all famous things that everybody hears about. And and you know, you gotta go to college, right? That's another one, right? You gotta go put in yep. your four years and then you're not allowed to even apply for a job until you put in your four-year degree and all this garbage. Um, it's not supposed to be that way. When you're doing what you love, it should feel easy, right? And yeah. I wonder if Duke would say the same thing to you, right? Like, Dave, it wasn't hard. Like, I loved what I was doing. What are you talking about? Swimming? Loved it. <laughs> right? Surfing? Loved it. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Um, having the the perspective to look back now, yes, I think you you nailed it spot on. Um, but still, to be put in with that group of people, just I don't know that that those are such significant people that have accomplished so much. And like I say, I just felt like I was playing. Nothing was ever drawn up on a drawing board in some secret laboratory where we make up what's next. It, it doesn't exist. It didn't happen like that. Right. Everything was so serendipitous and so much about the fun and the, the guys I was running with at that time. And because of windsurfing, we had already crossed over that mental hurdle of getting outside traditional surfing. And so really what that means is everything's on the table. No, there's nothing you can't do because of breaking from tradition. We had already crossed that line. And so everything we did uh, was in pursuit of just having fun, getting away from the crowd. We weren't encumbered by any mental or traditional um, barriers to dictate how we should do something or whether we should do it or not at all. And so that's why I say a lot of, a lot of what we did um, wasn't well thought out, wasn't well planned. A lot of the advice I give clearly based on now, the Clearly based on the experience. I mean, along those lines, Dave, speaking, for those of you, again, listening or, or watching that, you know, haven't actually been to a large wave break, right? I've been to Waimea as an example, uh, when they've had one of the magic, you know, Eddie classics just and by the way just pure dumb coincidence everybody else has probably been waiting around for months for them to have the contest i just get off a plane typical howley <laughs> hey let's go check out the north shore why are all these cars up there on the mountain what's going on what the hell wow look they're having a surf contest yeah a big one um but to feel it i don't people don't understand like the wave comes in and when the rocks are shaking on the cliff that that's an unbelievable thing to think so to think of you guys going yeah let's, let's play let's take a blow up inflatable with a little outboard out there and not get killed um that'd be cool let's try that out uh i don't think people actually understand what that it, it is like and what that means and you know dave part of what for me personally i know and again i'm going to throw some names out there just because uh there's going to be people listening to this that are not in the paddleboard community they're not you know they're 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 just you know have their own hobbies so to speak um but you know when you look at stand-up paddleboarding people may know the names like kai lenny uh mainly because kai is kind of he does it all right he's a total circus freak of of uh, anything that touches water he's good at and then does weird things with it besides um but you helped tr coach him uh slater trout who for anybody on social media slater was one of the first people to kind of embrace instagram and get a big following and stuff like that and, Slater has this very, you know, kind of world traveler, wander the world, waterman, do it all, skydiving, the whole thing. But you, you know, you coach these guys uh, coming up. And, and I think for me personally, when I see you inducted into the Hall of Fame, it's about passing on um, this heritage and this knowledge. And so uh, Duke and, and those men did that. You're doing it. I think it counts, man. <laughs> it qualifies. Well, I don't think it's the work. I think it's the love and the energy. Uh, you know, there's there's one more award along those lines I wanted to mention. And correct me if I'm wrong in this, David. I apologize. Now, now I'm going to show my 
podcasting novice um, trying to figure out where I wrote this down. Um, you won an award having to do with um, embracing uh, Hawaiian culture. It starts with a B. There's a name, or maybe that was the B. No, that wasn't the B. Part. I, I apologize. You didn't win an award. That's what you're known for. So you're known, apparently, <laughs> that's what I'm being told. You're very well known in Hawaiian culture and also globally for really not only embracing the culture, uh, but the heritage and the community that surrounds everything related to water uh, in the Hawaiian Islands and things like that. And, and you know, uh, for anybody that's ever been over there and experienced it or watched videos, watch videos on, on TV, YouTube, et cetera, you know, you'll see things where, you know, or, or even some of the cornier movies that have been done about surfing in Hawaii uh, with this whole localism and, you know, you know, don't go to that beach. They'll beat you up if you're not, uh, you know, if they don't recognize you and all this kind of stuff. Um, I think you've been kind of an ambassador of, you know, what the culture really should be perceived at, how it should be respected, uh, and how every, how it's enjoyable for everyone. I mean, that was one of the things I love about C4 Waterman when I read Brian Keolana's little thing on what's Aloha to him. It, it had nothing to do with being Hawaiian and nothing to do with being a local versus, you know, a Howley. It, it, it applied to everyone in the world. It meant just expressing what you love and sharing it, no matter where you're at, and, and doing it without asking for anything in return. Well, right. I, I think the golden rule, treat other people how you'd want to be treated, isn't just the saying in Hawaii. It, it's part of what aloha is. Um, and more. It's it's the giving, it's the sharing, it's not just treating other people with respect and, and kindness, but it's um, the energy that comes from me giving you something, not necessarily that I have, but that's within me, either knowledge, emotion, um, time, whatever it is, experience, sharing that um with other people um yeah that's that is hawaiian but much more so that's just being nice it's being kind <laughs> you know what i mean it's called being human right it's called I think being human I think it's fair to call that being a human being so for those of you that are new to blue rock and and, and uh, again forgive me for I'll, I'll get on my soapbox a little bit because i want to keep redefining this the concept of the name Blue Rock is that we're on a big Blue Rock, right? We're all seventy percent of this planet is covered by water. Clearly, Dave enjoys more than it than <laughs> more of that percentage <laughs> than the average fella uh, or average average human on the planet. Um, he clearly also probably is is way more defined as a Blue Rock. He lives on an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. That's a Blue Rock. Uh, but the concept behind it is we're all in this thing together, right? There are no countries' borders governments, uh, religions, et cetera, we're all human beings, right? We all, you know, aside from colors or backgrounds or cultures, we all have two hands, two feet, you know, 10 fingers, 10 toes, uh, et cetera. So what Dave's referring to is something that really is an element that runs through all of us. It shouldn't be just Aloha or it shouldn't be just an Hawaiian thing, right? I mean, is that fair to say? Very much so. It it is such a deep-rooted concept and and part of the Hawaiian culture 
that, yeah, I'm very proud that that's a huge basis of, of what Hawaiian culture is about. But like you just explained, it's it does not need to be unique to Hawaii. It is very much an Earth thing, a blue you, rock. You don't thing, need right? to get on a, on a plane and, and put a puka shell necklace around your neck and uh, uh, paddle out of Waikiki to feel aloha. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Uh, I love that. Um, so uh, along those lines, Dave, are you familiar with the term, uh, and, and I'm a, I, I used to say this a different way. I just learned that I was saying it wrong because it's Hawaiian. Oh, 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 oh. I call it ho, Ho'oponopono. Yep. It's actually pronounced Ho'oponopono. Ho'oponopono. Yeah. So you're familiar with that yep. term? Okay. So that was one of the things I wanted to get kind of your input on that too, because this is something, believe it or not, I only learned a couple, two, three years ago. Uh, and I read a book, and, and I'll, I'll probably put it up in the credits and stuff what the book is if anybody wants to go take a look at it, but it's been written by some, some gentlemen in Hawaii, but it's the art of, of, of Pono, which is the art of forgiveness. And one of the things I loved about it, uh, which always, for whatever reason, always reminded me of you, is it's about the fact that uh, uh, it's an old, old practice in the Polynesian, traditionally Hawaiian islands, uh, when there was a conflict in a village or a conflict between two tribes or islands or what have you. Uh, the whole concept of just coming together and going, you know what? Uh, I'm sorry. Forgive me. I, I love you. I, I, yep. I thank you. I love you. Um, they would say that to each other, and that was it. There was nothing else needed to be said. Arguments over. No war. No battle. Let's go surf and have a bonfire. Like <laughs> it, it, like that. It's that simple. And when I started incorporating it into my own life here uh, as a right coaster. Um, uh, ex-New Yorker, which you can't get the more opposite of Ho'oponopono than New York City. Um, Again, I love New York. I'm just talking about just in general. Everybody's very, it's not that people are mean and not forgiving. They're just very driven, right? The energy is just, right? There's definitely something to be said for island time. So how do you feel about that, Dave? Do you, was that something that resonated with you? Do you incorporate that into your day-to-day? Because to me, that was something that like you were just saying, that should be a human thing, not just this ancient Hawaiian practice uh, that, that, that's hidden away. Yeah. Um, having the benefit of age, maybe a little too much of it now on my side, <laughs> it's, it's very easy for me to grasp and practice that. Uh, when you're young and you're trying to prove yourself, you're trying to earn respect within your group or culture um it's it's less of a a focal point right and so you're less inclined to forgive people when it's more about you as you get older and you start to realize it's not just about me um it's about us that opens your mind to realizing life is so much better when there's no tension or or there's no hate, or there's no fear of somebody the, when else. When you drop the ego, yeah. When you, when you when drop you the ego. leading with ego, yeah. Um, and when you can do that, and you can clear the air with somebody that maybe you've had an issue with, and while I am aware of it, I am far from knowledgeable about the Hawaiian culture, but there's a few things, aloha, ho'oponopono, that most people know. They're, they're pretty common uh, over here. Yeah, it's 
it's very simple, or at least at the time, back in the Hawaiian culture, there was way less distractions, less materialism. And so while it might seem idealistic to be able to forgive somebody, I think, as you explained it, when they did, it was done. You didn't walk away from going, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make that next business deal. Or if I sell 500 coconuts and he only sells 100, you know, da, da, da. It, it was very simple. And so I do believe Ho'oponopono and its roots was very authentic and very effective. It's it's more difficult to do that now with so many different objectives and, and focal points and priorities within your life. But if you can grasp any of that concept and utilize it in your daily life, even if it doesn't benefit the person you're forgiving, more importantly, it will benefit you and letting go of the letting go of that anger it's, and that stress that you funny. carry. Yeah, it's funny you said that because I I've I'm I'm the one that introduced this to my family. And when I say my family, my wife, and my daughter. And uh, you know, we'll have an argument. Everybody gets in arguments. You know, you try and maintain peace. I can spend the whole day on the water and yet, you know, come back to the house and some goes sideways and there goes my day on the water. Um my my Zen moment's gone. But uh I taught it to them and so we use it all the time. Uh that we've all adopted it. Uh, my wife and I use it probably more than anybody in the household. Uh we can have an argument and I will literally just text her. I'm sorry. Forgive me. I love you. And that's it. And that's the message to both of us. And she'll send back Ho'oponopono to me with a heart. We're done. Now, the funny part about that is, if I really got her wound up, right, she's really ticked off because we were in some kind of debate, and she really feels like she needs to win this one. And I send that to her. She sometimes is coming to my office and said, I don't care that, that you sent me that. I'm not accepting it. And I go, that's the beauty of it. You don't have to. I feel great. <laughs> and they're like, no, I'm not accepting it. And she's like, I'm like, it doesn't matter. That's not how it works. I said it. I've been released. I'm free, you know? Um, and it was like that in the beginning. Now she's like, you're right. Oh, oh, oh we're good. Right? And it's, it really has it's simplified things. And it prevents having these long, drawn-out conversations and debates and things like that. It's just, hey, I'm a human being. You're a human being. We had a disagreement. I love you. I'm sorry. Forgive me. That's it. it. Move it, on. It reminds you very succinctly what's more important, the cap getting put back on the toothpaste or that connection and the love and bond that you have with the person. Correct. Correct. And, and just that little reminder is like, yeah, you know what? My bad. <laughs> the cap on the toothpaste <laughs> okay. <laughs> We're bigger than that. Let's move yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, for, for us, it, it, it became such a part of my daily life. Um, I've taught it to other people. I've sent the book as Christmas gifts to, to some of my staff that works for me and stuff like that. And I think some of them appreciate it. Others are like, what the hell? What is, what is this thing? You know, this, is, this is, seems awful kind of woo-woo, spiritual, yep. you know, whatever. Um, it's the kind of guy I am. I, I, I think I've always been attracted to that. That's why when you said you heard a voice over your shoulder, holy shit, he's been doing this. As long as I have, I just ignored the voice. Like I didn't, <laughs> I didn't pay attention to it like he did. So I'm a little, I'm a little jealous that <laughs> that you recognize that so so early on. Um, so I want to talk about a couple more things like that, but I also want to be fair and make sure I get caught up to where you're at today. So where you're at 
today, Dave Kalama today has uh, Kalama Performance, right? Uh, and I'll let you talk about that a little bit. You know, that's, you know, board making foil, obviously now, you know, so for, for here's one of the things I will talk in this esoteric part before we get into Kalama Performance, because it relates to it. And I just put this up on social media the day. I was reading, somebody was saying something, there was a video that was up and it was two guys that had taken a foil board. You may have seen this day. Uh, two guys, I don't know what the break was. I don't know whether it was Australia. I'm not really sure what part of the world it was in. But two, it was a long border and a short border. Clearly were pissed off at a foil border that had been in the break, right? The foil border had lost the border, washed up on the beach. They are jumping up and down on this guy's board, ripping the foil out of the deck. So much anger, right? And what cracked me up was, I was like, wait a minute. So back in the day, Gidget days, it was longboard. Then you get into the 70s, shortboard comes out. Shortboarders, longboarders hate the shortboarders. Then shortboarders gets really big in the 80s. Shortboarders hate the longboarders. Then stand-up paddleboard comes out in the 90s, and it's the shortboards and longboards all hate the stand-up paddleboarders, and now everybody hates a foil. <laughs> it's just a weird thing. Nobody wants to explore anything new, and they just want to hate whatever shows up nobody sees it for what it could or can't be when i when i first started standing paddleboarding here on the right coast uh and i dave i think i told you this story uh, 2005 ish laird there was a little tiny article in outside magazine about laird biking to raise money for autism which by the way that was one thing i forgot just so you guys all know dave and laird bike and paddle the entire hawaiian island change chain to raise um, awareness for autism. Um, what, when was that date? How long ago? Uh, I think that was 2008 or seven, something like S that. Somewhere in that range, right? 430 yeah. miles-ish? Does that uh, sound about right? Linear? Yeah, that sounds okay. <laughs> you, probably paddled, right. you probably, the paddling alone probably took you more than that just because of the currents and the drifting, but linear straight line, if you could have done that. Yeah, in my mind now, it's probably closer to a thousand miles. <laughs> but I don't think anybody understand. They're like one hundred thirty miles. Eh, that's not much. That's that's kind of like you know, Lopez yeah. looking up on the on the cliff, going, "I can go ride that." Exactly. Yeah, drive four hundred thirty miles in Hawaii on land, and then add in the span between the islands. That's a feat, man. I mean, the currents, the wildlife that's following you along the way. That's I don't think people have any concept. Uh, if you're in between the islands on a paddleboard, because you, you were prone paddling, right? Or, or stand up? Stand up. You were stand up. It doesn't matter. I mean, how big were the boards you guys were using? Uh, 16 and 17. And about how wide? Uh, 26 or 7, something so, like that. So, you know, for anybody listening that's not aware, they're standing on a 16-foot board, 23 inches wide, maybe about 4 inches out of the water, with with just i'll just go with tiger sharks that are bigger than what they're fighting <laughs> just cruising by i mean and winds waves surf that nobody is and unless you've done any kind of open water paddling or distance paddling not a clue because it, it, it this isn't going out on a calm lake and paddling you know 50 miles this this is it, it's it's unbelievable and again dave I, I'm, I'm absolutely going to have you back we're going to talk more because i got so much more to talk about and we don't i'll be here with you for five hours we okay. and we're going to keep going a little bit more i'm just saying like yeah, I yeah, yeah. Okay. but anyway i just want to mention that but the, for me stand up paddle boarding you know here i'm in the right coast i'm a surfer 
from New York down here now in the hub of East Coast surfing. You know, I got the Hobbs Good Twins around and, and uh, you know, I know CJ really well. And uh, the Lopez brothers are around and all this stuff. And uh, I see this little article in Outside Magazine. Laird's biking from Paris to the Normandy coast and then stand up paddling. This is 2005 across the English Channel. And there's this yellow board with his name on it and a paddle. And all I saw was that little picture and stuff. And I went, wow, that looks really cool. So I did a couple of quick searches on the interweb back then. Um, <laughs> saw it, saw in the article that Randy French, who owns Surf Tech, yeah. uh, was helping make them and distribute it. My local surf shop was a surf tech dealer. I literally rolled down there with the article. And I remember walking in and Mike Mann, who's the owner, goes, what the hell is that? And I go, I, I, I don't know. Surf Tech makes it. He goes, hold on. So he calls Randy. I'm in his office. He puts Randy on the, on the speakerphone. And he's like, hey, I got a guy in here who wants to order one of these. What the hell are they? And Randy goes, uh, yeah, you can take a deposit. We'll have them out about a month. Yeah, that's, that was like uh, 16 months later. I don't know, some ridiculous time. It was like 14 <laughs> months later, they call me back and go, hey, this big stupid thing you ordered just came in. Oh, and by the way, it's no longer coming with a paddle. And we have no idea how to get you one. But here, come pick it up because we need to get the hell out of our showroom. And they had three of them. Right? So I go down and I get the board and I'm like, seriously, you have no, no, we have no idea what this thing is. It's 10 times bigger than a, than a, they're, they're, what those boards, what, 12 feet, 12, one by 35, yep. 34. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's like the size of a car. So yep. I go down and get this thing and uh, start immediately searching for paddles, right? Because they, my surf shop was like, ah, we have no idea. Just get this thing out of here. So I go and pick the thing up. I find Todd Bradley, who literally has this little, almost like a MySpace page, and his cell phone on it, right? <laughs> and I know it's a cell phone. I, I go and call it, and Todd's like coming back from the beach. He's like, hello, Todd Bradley. And I'm like, yeah, do you guys sell Pat? Yeah, let me, let me, I got to get to my car and towel off. I'm like, what the hell is this? So long story short, we got a deal. He uh, agrees. He goes, hey, I can save you some shipping, some FedEx shipping. If your shop wants to get like three or four of them, I'll, I'll get you this. I called the shop and they had two more boards that they had ordered with mine with no buyers. Sitting literally, Mike Mann's like, get these freaking, he was so pissed. <laughs> Cars were sitting in his showroom. Um, so the manager at the time goes, yeah, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll go ahead and get it. So I, once or should I get my first paddle? No idea how to cut it. I'm like talking to Todd on the phone and he's trying to tell me how to cut it. And all <laughs> so I go out to my, out my surf break. And oh my God, man, this is 2006. People are like, what in the heck? I could, right? Yeah. Besides the fact, I can't stand on it for more than 15 minutes. Legs start going to jelly. They're shaking yeah. like crazy because people don't realize all the little micro muscle movements that are going on. And so uh, for three weeks, I'm a kook again. I'm, I'm 10 years old, falling on my ass, uh, not even attempting to paddle into a wave, just trying to freaking stand up. Finally catch my first wave. Dude, I, I remember watching a movie or something with Jerry Lopez talking about this. I think he's with Sam yep. George, the, the ex-editor of Surf Magazine. And he's talking about him seeing that for the first time and then going out and trying it for this time and going like, oh, my God, this is I can go out for 30 minutes and catch 10 waves and go home. Like, I'm satisfied. I'm full, right? Sam George, I remember saying the same thing. Well, that's what happened to me. I started catching waves. Well, we ended probably about a month. People are starting to walk up to me on the beach. Dude, well, what's going on here? You, you know, I sat out there for an hour and a half. I caught one. Uh, you, you caught like 13 waves, surfed all the way into the beach, and left after 20 minutes. Like, what the hell? 
So I, again, because Brian, Kel- you know, this whole thing of my my this this shared energy that we have uh, that that you, know, that you and I have, I literally would just go here, go try it out. I didn't care. Right. Go, they bang up the rails, chip the edges of my paddle. You know, it didn't matter. Um, I ended up racing a 22 mile race on the thing. By the way, with a fishtail cutaway fin in 25 mile an hour headwinds, racing 12 miles. Took me seven and a half hours. Wow. <laughs> Ran out of water at five hours. Ran out <laughs> of food at six hours, something like that. Oh man, it was it was but again, I was hooked. That was it. From there it turned into yeah. race boards and oh my god, now I've got, I don't know, fifteen stand up boards, all different sizes, <laughs> shapes. You and I've had talks about all the crazy fin designs and, and different yep. and different things. Um, but yeah, I mean coming forward from that so kalama performance stand-up paddle boards now you got foiling um tell me a little bit about that like just what what you guys are doing what you're into all that stuff so the foiling for me has rekindled that stoke and inspiration that comes from your first wave it is such a different and unique sensation as compared to any other board sport um you you literally feel like you're flying now it's not easy but it is doable and i think that's part of the attraction is you don't just show up and go foiling you have to earn it and with with that challenge um comes satisfaction from improvement and and sometimes the improvement is significant and sometimes it's micro but every step forward feels good because it took a lot to get there combine that with just the pure joy of, of riding a swell not even a breaking wave just a swell um, is amazing and so that's that's what attracted me to foiling initially then once i started to understand what was going on and what needed to happen came the design part and having to tap into my creativity my critical thinking my problem solving and now it became so much more fun um to have that puzzle to try and solve there's the writing i'm trying to improve in the the fundamental skills of it and then there's the equipment side which poses a whole new um challenge to solve and had to rely on my creative thinking all my past experience with various water holes of displacement of planing um, all the different speeds that are going on because there's a very wide variety of, of velocity dynamics happening you need a displacement hole initially to get going so that the foil can kick in and create the lift to get up then there's the random touchdowns that you want to minimize the drag anyway there's there's all these aspects to the design of the board and not even touching on the, the actual hydrofoil um, really inspired me again to, to try and crack the code and then make that information or these boards available to other people so that it becomes easier for them. So that's kind of the focal point of Palom performance right now. Uh, it's definitely skewed towards foiling, but with all the foiling I've done in the last couple of years and having set down my stand-up and my longboard for quite some time 
I am now rediscovering them and perhaps having as much or more fun than I've ever had on my stand-ups and my longboards. So now I've got three things every time I go to the beach that no matter what I pick, I'm coming out of the water just out of my mind, stoked, and uh, with a real level of satisfaction and joy that, you know, on the short term makes that day better. And in the long term, makes life ultimately better, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, so, for, so for people don't realize what I want to, I want to stop you right here for a second, Dave. For people don't realize when you're using the word foiling. So again, I know people that are, for us that are watermen, you know, geeks, we, we're like, oh, foiling, ah, you know, like that's my new thing. And for those that aren't listening that don't know what that is, so you and you and Laird started doing this how long ago? Oh, uh, I think it was mid late nineties. Right. And, but it was just towing in. Right. So there was, yep. I remember growing up as a kid being in a New York boat show and seeing the, what was that thing called? Where you sat on it? The, the, air, the air chair. chair. The air yeah, chair. Yeah. Right. So I remember a kid thinking from. that thing looks cool. And then <laughs> to your point, I remember seeing, I think it was the step into liquid might've, they might've touched on this, that you guys decided somebody brought one to the Island. Yep. You guys went, this is boring. We're sitting down, chop the thing up. Let's figure out how to stand up on it. Tow it behind whatever the hell crazy thing you're using then to tow into waves um, and realize, holy crap, we're riding the wave beneath the wave. Yep. Right. So you're riding the energy of the wave, which again, we're always riding the energy of the wave, but we are requiring that breaking energy. This is riding almost a more powerful energy, right? That's below that, that ground swell. So to speak, that's below tapping tapping into that energy and drastically reducing the amount of drag it takes to ride it so between those two right. things really different dynamics going but on but back then you guys needed that power of something to tow it because you're using smaller foils and all of that and so what dave's talking about now with climate performance is now we're talking about you don't need necessarily um something to tow you in he he and he's been really te- ex- expanding the ability to stand up paddle and foil um use a wing that's a whole nother thing that you brought your windsurfing background into i remember kai lenny with the foiling that giant uh i'm just gonna say it that giant orange dildo he wore one time to do <laughs> that blow thing on his back yeah Very creative. i remember seeing it being like man this dude's thinking way outside the box but i don't think anybody's gonna wear that um and then all of a sudden the wing showed up and it was like oh forget that thing right like you know that that seems a lot cooler right you look more like batman going down it but i like i like the idea of the wing and i haven't dave i have one of your personal boards and unfortunately because of covid and everything else i have not put a foil on it and i haven't gone out that is my goal for 2022 is to become a foiler but the wing combined with the foil is almost more uh, draws me more because my sailing background it's an easier form right easier than than the 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 hop and pump you know crew so to speak what what it creates is a counter force yeah. to balance against. Right. And so that makes the balance. Do you feel it makes it, that easier? Does it make it, it easier to absolutely. foil in some sense? Okay. Absolutely. Good. The the form that I'm doing is more closely related to tightrope walking, where it's all contingent upon you balancing at a single point. Right. Right. With with the hand tight, there's a counter force that you can use to constantly kind of adjust yourself to stay centered over over that singular balance. Right. So when Dave's talking about foiling, for everybody listening, 
he's what's actually happening is yes there's a board of some type size what have you attached but there's a mass that's fairly narrow it's attached to the bottom and at the bottom of it you have wings um you know similar to what people might have seen in in certain types of uh asian kites and things like that like they have that kind of similar shape uh honestly very much like a manta ray in some shapes that i'm seeing um but the whole point of it is is that you're not staying on the board when you're actually boiling you're rising up out of the water and the only thing in the water is actually under the water not on yep. top of it and you're it's a magic carpet ride right it's it really you're, you're, you're aladdin in that in that moment and it's the skill and the feeling of staying up there is what's attracting so many people in, in the water sport community to to gravitate towards it um there is a skill level thing and i think dave that's what you're doing with climate performance is trying to make it easier Yes. for people to foil i think in the earlier day certainly in the early days and as we even flash forward even now it's still people go yeah i want to try that and i watch guys local guys here and they'll spend a whole ton of money on what they were told to buy and they go out there and i'm watching them and you can just see the discouragement growing by the minute um because they're just exhausted and they never got up in the air and they're yeah. you can see them just they, they almost they, they don't want to they're they're torn between destroying the equipment <laughs> and expressing their frustration as they kind of walk up on the beach and go that's a freaking waste of money. that thing's going to be a doorstop um so Dave, that's, not that's, easy. That's, talk a little bit about that because that's really where i think kalama performance is going not just with that but with the other you know longboards and and stand-up paddleboard well one other interesting fact right now i just noticed i have three percent left on my phone <laughs> no plug that's a no, true server no, no the, plug the plug is with the earphone so if i undo the earphones i can plug in and get the energy flowing back in oh, you don't have a little dongle yeah you can go, you can go look go ahead we'll see how the sound okay up. one second is the audio okay yeah it sounds okay here okay yeah, um, that should be okay so yeah the the focal point is is cracking the code to make it as easy as possible with the foil board um and then making stand-up boards and long boards that are really easy to ride and just make it easy to have a fun time on the water um in longboarding right now it's very popular to have kind of old california style longboards which is cool, yeah. and I love that style of riding, nothing against it at all, but they're not easy to ride. And so my longboards are much easier to they're turning, catch waves great, nose ride, a little more versatile, I guess you'd say. Uh, the stand-up board, same kind of philosophy, they're a longboard outline, um, really versatile. I, I like that style of surfing, where you can get on the tail, back the lip, or nose, or from the center whatever whatever you're into um, people ask me that all the time out here because they'll see me out surfing and the the biggest comment i get when i come into the beach is wow you really know how to handle that board it's not me it, it i'm being I'm, I'm being honest with you and i don't i don't actually have it i don't have a climate performance stand-up board but i have a hawaiian waterman designed board and it's the way you guys approach volume and where to put it to make it so that it's easy to catch a wave regardless of the size of the wave maintain the energy and the speed 
Um, weight's a big thing, and everybody's gone super light. And I heard you say recently you're going back heavy again. And I was told this a long time ago. I remember Brian Kailana saying, hey, once you get to a certain lightness, you need that weight on waves because you, you don't want to – you lose the momentum uh, of that. So there's a delicate balance of, yeah, you want it lighter so that you don't get tired walking it down to the beach. But if it's going to suck in the water, who cares how hard it was to get to the beach? That's kind of my philosophy. So. Well, weight. Yes, everything you just said, I agree with, and it's true, as I know it. But to kind of expand on it a little more, the slower you go, yeah, it's nice to have a light board. You can kind of throw it around and generate speed. But as the speed increases, that lightness turns into a, a higher frequency of bouncing and nervousness. And that's not fun to ride when you're going really fast and things start to get critical. And that's where that weight dampens all the vibration moves everything out and allows you to make a, a calmer, more positive, uh, more flowy turn, yeah. yeah. more momentum associated with it. And so that's why a little bit of weight, I think, not too much because you don't want the, the low end to be too compromised, but it, it extends the versatility and the range of what the board can serve well. Right, right. So, you know, for, again, for those out there, that, this is one of the things I really try and, and emphasize. Um, and I think this goes for everything, right? You, you, once something becomes popular, a lot of people start jumping in and trying to take advantage of the popularity. And uh, there's always something, you know, even when there's cars, right? There's, cars are what, an engine and four wheels. So I can go and get a Lamborghini, which is ridiculously expensive. Um, and I can't drive it anywhere because the speed limits <laughs> everywhere restrict what the car can do. So I want to spend all this money for something to go really fast that I'm not allowed to go really fast. So, but I do believe there's also a certain level of quality and design, even though it is still just four wheels in a car. I kind of take the same approach with boards. And I do truly believe that that's what Dave is doing with his boards. Uh, even with the, the foil boards, I noticed when I got your personal board, which was funny is, you know, mine's a seven footer. You told me, oh man, I'm already going smaller. Are you going back the other direction now? A little bit? Yeah. Because you were heading short, short. And now I heard you talk the other day. I thought I heard something about, no, no, no. Kind of found, <laughs> I got to bounce back a little bit. Yep. Because you started, to, just like with, with stand up, you start to lose what you gain, so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. You so that, I mean, that point of diminishing return. Right. Find out sort of where the walls are where the, right. where the guardrails are and then you come back towards the middle a little bit and find that blend of of positive benefits that uh keeps the board versatile and allows you to and as far as level of performance access to your equipment Oklahoma performance is still just mainland and and hawaii you guys are not global yet correct uh no we we have a, a distributor in australia okay Japan, uh france perfect um and and we're trying to grow more so uh yeah it, it, it's expanding but um i'm really not trying to be the biggest brand out there that's not my intention or my goal no that's I not the message i'm trying to send i'm trying to send a message of hey you know there are certain things you want to be maximizing the fun right yeah. and so to me you want to have something that's going to make it easy to have fun when it becomes hard to have fun it's not that much fun, right? 
And that, to, to draw a whole circle back, Dave, that's why you're in the Hall of Fame and you didn't have to work that hard. <laughs> right? See, I tied that all together. Right? You, you, you've been having fun well the whole time. And that's why you're in the Hall of Fame, man. You don't have to work that hard to, to, to be that well respected and, and, and to have a full life, including accolades like Hawaiian Hall of Fame, Hawaiian Waterman Hall of Fame. So, um, that's awesome. And that's man. sort of the philosophy of the company. Yeah. I could try and increase it in size, but then I wouldn't play as much myself. I'd have to be working more. <laughs> You'd be looking at spreadsheets like I do all day, which is, <laughs> trust me, everybody, that is not fun. Um, <laughs> I, I did like four virtual calls this morning talking about uh, uh, cost, uh, cost of goods and materials and, and cost increases that are hit in the industry that's my other day job uh, and how I'm supposed to help figure that out and adjust ASPs and all this stuff. Yeah, I, that's I'm I'm not doing any of that from the water. That's all sitting at my desk, not having as much fun as uh, honestly as I'm having right now. So, um, so Dave, so going in, obviously a lot of there's so much stuff I could cover with you. Uh, one of the little thing before I, I we get into kind of the final section here, um, I did want to cover just let everybody know, uh, maybe a little known fact. I think some people know it. Uh, Dave was James Bond. Uh, if anybody knows Die Another Day, there's an opening sequence uh, where supposedly uh, Pierce Brosnan is big wave surfing at night in the dark, right? Am I right, Dave? <laughs> in like a camo suit to get into wherever he's going. That's actually Laird and Dave doing that. Um, so that's a pretty cool fact, man. Uh, not many people have that on their resume. It was really fun doing it. Um, we shot for three full days, sun up to sundown. And how long was the shot seconds. in the movie? <laughs> yeah. The scene lasted probably less than a minute. Right, right. But uh, it was so fun to do. And it was Laird, myself, and Derek Dorner for the yeah. surfer. Yeah. And we had, I think it was Pete Cabrina. And maybe Rush Randall, but Laird and I were getting towed by one jet ski, and we had two ropes. And then Derek would get pulled in on the third rope so that we could clump together and kind of create this scene. And we were supposed to have night visual. Night visual yeah, right, rope. right. And, and uh, did you do it at night, little, or, or did they, did they play with the lighting? Were you guys actually doing it at night, or were you? No, no that's just a. That's uh, just a lighting editing. Thing. Yeah, that was a special effect. Right. Okay. But people have to understand, you know, when you're seeing movies today, right, and you're seeing movies like, you know, some of the new Dwayne Johnson movies and stuff like that, a lot of that stunt work, even though it's very real, meaning there are still stunt people involved, some of the more dangerous aspects are CG'd in. Um, yes. Not when you see that scene in <laughs> another day. That is Dave and Laird and, and, uh, and Derek Dorian just doing what they do and trying to not get killed at, at the same time. So, uh, Dave, I want to jump into this last part, um, yep. uh, kind of get a little esoteric here with your background, knowledge, Hawaiian heritage, kind of all that stuff, uh, and tie in a little bit of combo performance, I think, in this first question I'm going to ask you. So, I heard you say something the other day. It was in a little video clip, and it might have been an old commercial. You said, a board isn't complete until someone rides it. That sounds very Buddha-esque. 
in that in that it's like a you know there's, there's a, there's, if a tree falls in the woods does anyone hear it <laughs> kind of a thing um and if that doesn't say who dave Kalama is as a as a board shaper and a surfer nothing does to make that statement a board isn't complete until someone rides that's a very jerry lopez thing i, I picture jerry lopez in a in a lotus stance, yoga pose, <laughs> riding a board that has that written on the side of it as he, you know, cruises down. So, it, 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 tell me more about what you mean by that and how that applies to your life and uh, and how you kind of see the world. Well, I mean, when a shaper envisions a board, you're envisioning it not in a board rack or mounted on a wall. You're envisioning the rail that you want to create and how it would interact with the water. Let's say Sunset or Piaggi or wherever the spot is, you're envisioning how you want to make that rail to engage with the water for a certain type of rider, right? And, and every aspect, the rocker, the, the rail, the bottom contours, all those things. Your vision is one of action. And, and writing, um, I mean, if you were making it for a, the wall, it wouldn't matter what kind of rails. It, all that would matter is the color or the shine on it, right? But that's not how you design a surfboard. And so if a surfboard is designed with the intent to provide a means for someone to ride a wave, and that's what it's made for, then, then yeah, it, it's not really a surfboard until someone surfs it. So the the way now, Dave, where I'm going with this is where I heard it. This is, this is where my mind went. So the board itself has not fulfilled its destiny until someone's ridden it. Yeah, you can write, you can you can shape the coolest board, but if it never gets wet and nobody ever goes and puts it through its paces, it doesn't know what it is yet. Exactly, it's just a hunk of foam and fiberglass sitting on a stand. Your intention as a, as a shaper or designer. Um, for this project isn't really complete. Doesn't really come to fruition until whoever you made that board for uh, has an opportunity to ride it, and then and then the circle's kind of complete, right? Um, or it's closed or whatever. So there's the intention, there's the vision, and then there's the actual act that that sort of fulfills the whole arrangement. So you, you come from a long heritage. The Hawaiian culture in general uh, has a very strong connection to, you know, what the Hawaiians call mana, right? And actually, there's other cultures that refer to it as mana as well. In that everything is interconnected, right? The rocks on the beach, the, the, the grains of sand, the water, the sharks, the fish, the wind, uh, the mountaintops, uh, the Hawaiian people themselves. Everybody is is the same, uh, you know. In some other words, everyone is connected to the, uh, you know. Obviously, the, in ancient Hawaiian culture, they didn't refer to it this way, but in more modern times, if you think uh, quantum physics, right, uh, everybody's yep. connected to the field, right. Um, for me personally, I didn't start understanding that. And I'm, I'm going to speak to your age comment. Same thing, man. I wish I knew this stuff. When I was younger, and I kind of feel like you've known it without knowing you knew it. <laughs> it's the best way to put it. This whole time, right? Uh, that you know, a board isn't just a board. It's not just a hunk of fiberglass 
and phone. It has a life. It has a personality um, from the person that shaped it and the person that rides it and where they go. And there's an energy that carries along with it. I mean, uh, you know, for me, adding a couple of outrigger canoes to my quiver as I started getting more into this, I realized I, was, I had them pointed the wrong way when I store them. I read that the Hawaiians, you, 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 the nose has to be pointed towards the water or, or it, it upsets the energetic balance of the canoe, right? Am I, am I wrong in that? So I turned my canoes around, right? So all these little things. And what I found is they, aren't, uh, they don't disrupt my life. They've expanded my life. In other words, life seems to flow easier because I'm flowing with it. And that's kind of what, when I think, you know, it, for me personally, Step Into Liquid was, which you were in, was one of the first movies that first helped get people to understand um, what it's all about, right? Whether it was you talking or, or Laird or, or Jerry Lopez, you, you guys were all kind of like, you could, you could literally just be never seen a body of water. And you could watch that movie and go, wow. That's cool. They've got, there's something going on there that you can feel the energy. And I think there's even a quote in there, not from you, but one of the other surfers that says, you know, we're riding waves, frequency, or, you know, it's, it's physical frequency. There's frequency everywhere, energy patterns, energy waves. We're actually tapping into it. Uh, and I think even right now with where you're focused with, you know, not focused, but it's a, it's kind of one of the leading edges of climate performance and the foil. My God, how much more tapped into the frequency of the wave can you be than when you're on a foil? Right? I mean, you're you're literally tapping that under underneath energy. Do you feel like that is something you're aware of? Like, does that feed into you? Does that um, become part of not only who you are, but almost energize you on a day to day basis? Yeah, I mean, you're you're trying to encapsulate a philosophy that is extremely broad. Um, but once you start to adopt it and, and more so apply it to your life, um, there is a certain flow, let's say, uh, more specific at times, like when you're actually riding a wave or doing it down winter, or times less specific when Let's say you're driving the car or taking the kids to school or whatever it is, uh, where you're not fighting everything. There's traffic, yeah. taking the kids to school. You can get, oh, why are these cars there? Why is it taking so long? It can create this frustration and this negative energy, and, and it can consume you and make things much more difficult. Um, or you can just kind of go with the flow and ride what's in front of you, be it a wave or a traffic jam. <laughs> and well, yeah, because you're—I mean, to your point, as a, as a, as a fellow surfer, you're not having a lot of fun if you're angry because you just missed that wave, or you fell off before the wave finished, or whatever. And you start getting nothing gets better; <laughs> it just all gets worse. Everything just starts unraveling. So I like that, uh, that connection that everybody can relate to and the fact that, yeah, surfing to the average person, you know, and I, it, this has been talked about in a lot of surf movies, you know, ah, surfers, they're just goofing off, right? They're lazy. They're just, they just want to have, they, they don't want to grow up. They're just having fun. 
I don't see that, right? Uh, most surfers I know are prolific businessmen, um, have great, very strong family bonds. They've got great friends. They've got great, uh, a great family un- uh, friend unit, right? They have very strong relationships with their friends. Um, they seem to have more balance. And I think it does come from this energy that you guys are, that we're all tapping into through something that we love so much. It's like it, it, it almost makes it easier to tap into the energy because it's so much fun, right? You're, you're vibrating at this really high level, tapping into this really high vibration. And then it just kind of, it almost reprograms you uh, in how then you go about your day, right? The ocean, the energy that's out there, every surfer knows or should know or will learn, that is your teacher. Right. And when you're open to the lessons, you can learn a lot. But if you're not and you're fighting it, um, you're creating a momentum that, that rolls or continues to create momentum in the wrong direction that just makes things harder and yeah, harder. Yeah. Or to learn to go with it, use the current to get you where you want to go rather than swimming against the current. And that momentum can make life easier if you learn yeah. to work with it. Yeah. So to your point, it, it is in essence a teacher, which allows you to take all those lessons and concepts and apply them in different aspects of your life. And if you do, chances are so that's the common thread. That's the, that's the thing that everybody, you don't have to live on the water. You don't have to be a surfer to relate to that. Find your own flow in your reality uh, and use the same concept. And it should translate. Frequency is the same everywhere, right? Whether it's coming from an ocean wave or whether it's coming from, you know, skateboarding down a hill in, in, in Arkansas. It, it all should relate. Right, that energy and that flow, and then have that carry over into your everyday life. As a teacher, obviously, you've been in some extreme conditions. Have you ever had a near death experience? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had something where it was well, you had something that really altered you because of what happened in the situation? Yeah, I mean, when you say near death, that I feel my life was in question for a few moments, yeah. Uh, I've never died right. that experience and then come back, which sounds really profound from some of the stories I've heard. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Being, being held underwater for an excessive amount of time, uh, I've had those internal conversations with myself 20, 30 feet underwater. I'm not even sure how deep I was, but kind of going, wow, this is bad. This is really bad. If you were ever going to have a problem, this could be it. And what, what, what was happening and in that thinking, moment? How, what, how were you feeling and thinking? Um, you know, I, was, I knew I was in a really serious situation, but I also know that letting the moment overwhelm you and consume you with, with panic is almost certain. It's almost certain you will not survive or you lower your chances immensely, significantly less chance of survival when you place everything on top of your shoulders. And so at that moment, I tried to shut all that down and just go one stroke at a time. If you're going down, 
is going down twice, so let's get going. Let's start with one. Okay, now two. And keep going one at a time until you get there. And right. fight to that very life moment, whenever that moment is. And so you really try and segment what needs to be accomplished to its smallest part. And just do them one at a time. Because you can do one stroke. Everybody can do one stroke. And if you can do one, you can do one more. And pretty soon those one more turn into 20 or 30 strokes or whatever it takes to get back to the surface. But if you're at the bottom thinking, I, I'm going to have to do at least 30 strokes, that's too many. I can do one. I know I can do one for sure. And if so have you, so you applied that, that in other parts of your life when you don't have a thousand tons of water on your head? Yeah. Absolutely, there's times where bills, family dynamics, car trouble, whatever it is, financial, whatever your pile is, right? you keep putting all those things up, and that's making you deeper and further underwater from the surface. Yeah. But if yeah. you take all those things that you need to deal with and just one at a time, let, let, me, let me put air in the tire so the car can drive. I can do that. Now the car works fine. Now I can go drive down to the bank and deal with the financial stuff. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you just start with one thing. You can't solve it all with one foul swoop. You can only do what you can do one step at a time. And if you break it down, set, set all the pile off the side for a minute, just pick one you can do one at a time. Eventually the pile's gone. Right. Right. So, and that's a very simplistic. Uh, example or analogy of, of what I mean, but it literally is how you have to approach it in order to get things through things that are overwhelming. Awesome. So, I, I like I said, I, I apologize. I still have so much more to talk to you about. I'm going to definitely have you back on again if you're willing to do it. I like to. I want to have a. I want to have a set thing of ending these podcasts, and, and so this. I'm going to ask you three different words. You can answer either in a single word or just whatever you feel like saying, right? It doesn't have to be just a single word association. Uh, what, what, what do you think or what, what comes to mind when I say the word, uh, word peace? Peace? Um, kind of somewhere between contentment and joy. Okay. Is, is peace. Um, I don't think you can, peace alone won't get you there, but it is such an important component of a full life, or a, a life of satisfaction. In Beautiful. Beautiful. Same question, when you hear the word love. Uh... Well, <laughs> there's a few different levels or layers to that. Okay. On a personal level, um, I think it's the key to a meaningful life, right? Have, having that relationship with my kids, with my wife, and, and the love that, that we all experience uh, is, is critical to fulfillment and, and sort of the and profound emotional uh, satisfaction, I guess. 
um, on a much broader level, love, as corny as it sounds and as corny as I thought it sounds, can solve so many of the world's problems if there were more of it. And people adopted it in not to their personal specific relationship, but on a much broader outlook. Because most of the anger that's in our politics, in our world, all stems from fear. And fear to me is a little bit of a, a lack or a void of love. So if you could feel, if you could fill that that area where the fear and the anger come from with more love, it, it almost puts, if fear were a fire, it almost puts that fire out. It can't, it can't exist. I've heard a lot of people say, fear cannot exist with love. Or that's literally, that's where we spend most of our time in life. We either spend it yeah. in fear or we spend it in love. But yeah. love, can, fear cannot exist without, you know, cannot exist in the presence of love. Um, and fear is a low vibration and love is a high vibration. So if you stay in love, you're in a high vibration. It's a hope and opponent every day, right? There's the, that's, that's all part of that as well. So that was awesome. One last one. And you touched on a little bit. Maybe you'll expand a little bit here. I don't know. Aloha. Yeah, you know, aloha starts with the golden rule. Treat people as you would want to be treated. And then it carries on to the emotional giving. It can be material giving. It can be knowledge and experience sharing. Um, and it doesn't always have to be giving, sometimes listening, sometimes participating with is a sign of aloha, uh, a, you know, sharing away <laughs> is yeah. a great uh, specific example of an act of aloha that can have a, a profound effect that um, in a simple action. That last part is something I don't think everybody understands. That how they are being in the vibration of this planet, this big blue rock, actually affects everything and everyone else. There was uh, there's a there's a place called the HeartMath Institute in California, and um, there's some other groups related to them that have actually now expanded and they put out um, these frequency measuring devices around the planet. And they've got several of them out there now. Uh, and they're also, they've been using satellites as well. There's a frequency that the whole planet kind of vibrates at. Like if, if all of us as humans left the planet, there's a frequency that they can measure. They can actually see it. The, the planet's actually vibrating at a certain vibration. I know Hawaiians have been well aware of this for... <laughs> long very long time millennia um and then when you look at certain events that are occurring around the world they've actually been able to measure that the frequency changes and crazy enough the morning of 9 11 they had this spike 
when and there was like a delay. So there's a delay of when the news got around the world of what had happened. Globally, the frequency did something it hadn't done in all the whole time they've been measuring the frequency. Huge, massive spike, right? Well, what that tells us is that how everybody's thinking and feeling can change the physical frequency of the planet. And the planet's alive. Again, Hawaiian culture, they know that as well, too. This isn't just a planet that, you know, through Big Bang Theory just showed up here. It's a, it's a living, breathing thing. I know you know as well as anybody. Um, but that statement about aloha, right, that, 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 that what you, how you're being affects everybody else, that ripple effect, that's that energy, that's that frequency. Dude, it's beautiful. Love it. Well, thank you for all that, Dave. Like I said, I, I, I didn't even, I got so much stuff still left on here to talk to you about. Um, so I, I can't wait to get back into it the, the next time. Uh, again, Dave Kalama, uh, a, a, a legendary mountain of a man with, with a huge heart. Uh, I love you, brother. Uh, I, I'm so excited for everything that's going on with you and your family. Um, you. Didn't even touch on all the crazy antics your son Austin's doing on. I don't even understand. I, I just assume you're I hovering. I, I assume you're hovering above him with a helicopter, and there's some kind of cabling thing that I'm not aware of. Because <laughs> he does things that, according to physics, shouldn't be yeah. happening with a foil board. I mean, that, like I said, there's so much more stuff, dude. We'll we'll, we'll catch it on the next one. Uh, again, Dave, thank you so much for everybody listening, everybody watching. Find peace, lead with love, and live aloha. Okay. Thank you for listening to Blue, to Blue Rock and uh, peace, love, and aloha. Thanks, Dave. Yep. And uh, I'll catch you soon. Have a great holiday if we don't get a chance to catch up. And Best of luck with the podcast. Happy holidays. Have a great Christmas. Have some fun in the water. Thanks, awesome. Thanks for having me on. Mahalo, brother. Appreciate it. Aloha. Aloha.